Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. Something slightly different this time, there's a gap in the schedule, so I thought I'd plug it with my own three important albums. Obviously it's a question that's gone round my head so much ever since starting the podcast as to what I would pick. And I only decided this morning. So I feel for everyone for whom I've given a few days, a week to come up with their selection. So I tend to ask my guests how they thought about the term important to come up with their list of three records. And I think for me it was quite a common one. It was three records that shaped how... I thought about the possibilities of sound either for me as a listener, purely experiencing what was possible, or as someone who makes music, like, what could I do? What was permissible as well? That's another question that really came into my head. So the first one is the album Nothing by Swedish metal band Meshuggah, which came out in 2002. That's an important point. They re-recorded and remixed and remastered the record in 2006. I'm definitely not talking about that version. We'll get into that. So I discovered this record while I was on a quite typical teen trajectory of getting into heavier and heavier music. And that dragged me into, say, the Kerrang! music channel away from MTV2. And then it dragged me again into Scars. It pulled me away from reading rock sound and into Metal Hammer. And then I landed on Meshuggah. I think I stumbled across their website somehow and they had these 30 second clips of the album Nothing. This is in the days of 56 kilobit dial-up modem, so really shoddy <laughs> introduction to their music. And... I was like, what is this? This is the darkest, heaviest stuff I've ever heard. And it's so weird. So Meshuggah, on this record, started tuning down their guitars a whole octave lower than standard tuning. And they use polymeter rhythms, so two time signatures on top of one another, which at that point in my life, I couldn't fathom what on earth was going on. You get the sense there's some synchronicity with the drums playing like a 4-4 standard beat and the guitars sliding against them somehow. But also, before you really know what's happening, you're like, this is just some wizard nonsense. This is great. So I bought the whole record and started to dive into it and I think the atmosphere of it was so unusual for me. I think metal records prior to that point atmosphere hadn't come into my head but nothing sounded like it was recorded in pitch black and notably it felt like it was recorded without players. I didn't know what Meshuggah looked like at this point. There's a there's a real sense of absent 
humanity on it to a certain extent just sounds like the machinations of something that's breaking and lurching Jens Kidman the vocalist on this record sounds like he's gargling fire there's no real aggression to the way he's shouting it's just in a, a, a an aesthetic presence the lyrics as well written by drummer Thomas Harker full of very abstracted conceptual material even though they're talking about often something that's very humane and fundamental and the guitars so the guitars are so distorted to the point where the tonality sometimes disappears you've got these low groaning stabbing riffs tuned to like drop e drop f that again just sound like malmeshed gears rather than anything fretted A really fascinating thing about this album is Sugar hated the production of the original one. They rushed it. So in 2002, they made the last minute decision to join the OzFest tour. And that meant mixing this record in two days and mastering it in one. Now, I've no doubt that that has resulted in some technical faux pas that makes people with more acute ears wince when they hear this record. And I think I'm having revisited it recently, I kind of get that. I think the cymbals and the guitars, there's a lot of fizz in there that all crashes together, particularly when the riffs really ramp up. There's a lot of cymbals, a lot of distortion. Everything congeals in the upper registers into one hiss but again for me i think that just plays into this you know broken hydraulic vibe to the record that i'm getting from it but anyway they re-recorded the record in 2006 they re-recorded the guitars anyway the drums the live drums were used to trigger samples and so oh and they use eight string guitars as well instead of seven string Everything to my ears got very sharper, tighter, flatter. The punch went out of it for me and also the instability. What I love about this first version of Nothing is that it sounds like it's about to pop off. I mean, particularly because they're using seven-string guitars in what I guess now we'd call eight-string tunings. You can hear the instrument bulging and bending, particularly on the low riffs that kind of groan. You know, there's a lot of these low notes that are just left to ring out or string bends that between the left and the right channel are slightly misaligned. You get all of these microtonal phases and groans that feel so wrong and like they're hauling these great anvils and just dragging them across the floor 
they mentioned, in fact, that in interviews around this time, tuning this low meant that certain guitar techniques were no longer feasible. Power chords don't work when you're in drop F, drop E. So what does work is these, evidently, these stabbing riffs, these sort of quick dun dun kind of motions that this record is full of. And you get these this sense of lurched movement and deceleration and acceleration going on in the riffs here. It's like a motor that's trying to get started, getting jammed, firing up again. There's a lot of that going on. My favourite track of the lot is Stenger, which is the first one. What comes to the fore on this track is how the drummer Thomas Hark is... Um, he's like a mixer between the two time signatures. He can decide whether or not you're focusing on the 4-4, four, four, the straight rhythm, when he's just playing a straight beat on the cymbals, playing the snare on every third beat. You're going to be following, you know, you're going to be bouncing your head along to something quite conventional, even if the guitars are whirling around in 15-4. You can really lock on to that groove. Or he'll throttle back the 4-4 four, four and bring forward this strange time signature even though the whole thing is technically still in 4-4, four, four, and I'm sure if your ears are more acute than mine, you can hear it as such. Some of the moments on this record, it's really difficult to, to keep that 4-4 four, four in your head, and Stenger is an example where I've never been able to do it. And what really fucks with you on this one is that the snare drum is on the third beat of every bar like it is in the most basic pop 4-4. Four, four. Okay, it's really slow. But because he's accenting, accenting the symbols on this strange time signature and they're in this stabby rhythm which constantly wrenches your brain away from this, you know, the momentum of the main rhythm, it, it feels like it's trying to heave itself in two different directions at once. And because I can't close the loop on that, on that song, I can't hear both of those time signatures. I know they're there and I can sort of intellectually register them but emotionally don't feel them i keep coming back to that song to try and solve it like a impossible puzzle so yeah i love this record one final thing as well is it got me onto the Meshuggah forum which I posted on all the time at that point. I mean, I had no one in my real life who wanted to hear me talk about Meshuggah as much as I wanted to. I really tried to, <laughs> to laden my friends with all this excitement I had. So I went on the forum and spoke to people, you know, dissected Meshuggah to a molecular level with people who knew so much more than I did. But also, you know, the now playing thread on that forum, almost like a proto-Twitter, where people just posted what they were listening to at that moment, ended up sparking up conversations that led me to completely overhaul my music taste. I reckon at some points, about 50% of what I was listening to was coming from that forum, and I'm talking, you know, electronic stuff, post-metal, we'll talk about that more in a bit, um, like 20th century classical, Björk, I think, as well. 
my affection for her music came through there. So the forum was a really important gateway and I wouldn't have gotten there without nothing. Okay, so my second important record is the self-titled album by Yezu, released in 2004. So like I say, I was getting into post-metal stuff through the Meshuggah Forum. Hydra Head had really come on my radar, the label run by Aaron Turner. I believe that's how I also got into Yezu. Yezu being the project primarily of Justin K. Broderick, also known for Godflesh. And at this point, you know, I was 15, I think, when I heard this record. I wasn't familiar with Godflesh. I was quite, probably quite rare in that sense of having come into Yezu, having not had the precedent of Godflesh. Obviously, there's so much Godflesh on this Yezu record. This is the first full length. The last Godflesh album came out in 2002, I believe. And then you had the Yezu EP Heartache in 2004 and this full length the same year the residue of Godflesh is strong on this Yezu album but the thing that really marked Yezu out was the emphasis on these glistening keyboard layers smothered in delays like nestled in between these like down tuned guitars and that's what I've used as a template for my music as tutor for the past 16, 17 years is this combination of down-tuned guitars playing melodies at slow tempos with lots of ambient layers ricocheting in between. That all started really with hearing this Yezu record. I mean, this, more so than any Yezu stuff that's come since, Justin sounds, to me, tired, broken down. His vocals are in a lower register than I think they have been on Yezu records since. And he just sounds like he's croaking into into giving up. Just There's even a track called Tired of Me on this one. And funnily enough, this is another one with a real problematic production. I didn't realise it at the time. This has only really come to light for me recently. But there, there is clipping and distortion, like the, the bad kind, quote unquote, all over this record. It's pushed right into the red the whole way through. When I was 15, I didn't hear that. And I listen back now, I'm like, Christ, the whole thing is crushed under its own volume. (laughs) 
that apparently meant that it wasn't possible to press the original mix onto a picture disc. The distortion was too much, you couldn't do it. So Justin had to remix the entire album for the purpose of the picture disc. So there are two distinct versions. The version on the CD is the very, very distorted one. And then you get the picture disc version, which is so much more throttled back, the distortion's rolled off. Everything is it like instrument-wise is in its own little pocket. There's a lot of empty space that you become very aware of that isn't on that original version where everything's smushed and smeared. I, I, I obviously I prefer that that version on the on the CD, not on the picture disc, because it feels like sentiment overpowering its means. Like there's too much sadness to be contained within a conventional production and its limits everything gets smeared together like tears running down cheeks and smudging makeup it's gorgeous loads of moments i love on this one my absolute favorite track is the first one your path to divinity it remains one of my favorite tracks of all time and an odd one for yezu as well it's got guitars that sound like maybe Ebo drones and a bass line that stays on the same two chords for most of its runtime. And a moment at 3 minutes 40 where this synthesizer organ kind of thing comes in, which sounds like it's faltering and is playing this unbelievably gorgeous refrain. There's then a further moment where you've got vocal harmonies, this organ, the drums kind of dropping to this pulse that makes my hairs stand on end still now. But it's one of the moments in music that I think has made me feel the most, most viscerally. This is one of those things, I think, where Justin produced a record that completely, immaculately overlapped like an eclipse my emotional framework I, I couldn't have put it better myself it's one of those things we were so <laughs> he, he didn't know this but we were so aligned i was ready to receive exactly this record when it came out I mean, as Justin says, these are basically just slowed down, distortion-laden pop songs. Niezu has embraced maybe the pop aspect of that more as it's progressed. But here, it was in tension with this sort of shield of distortion and volume that wouldn't let it embrace the prettiness which would otherwise mark pop. It's almost like this desire to be 
accepted to meld into sort of the musical midpoint of culture is being undermined by this wretched feeling, this like gut-born dread and sadness. One of the listens that really sticks out in my head of this one that I have in the memory banks is when I was going on a school trip to Germany when I was 16 we had to get a coach from the school at some ridiculous time like six in the morning so at five o'clock this was during the summer the sun was just coming up it was pretty warm it was a really gorgeous morning I took a walk to school no one was out with my headphones on listening to this album a lot of the landscape looked like Yezu cover artwork (laughs) and I still think about that memory now it's kind of seems to be a firm underpinning of my connection to this record So my last important record is Bar Sachiko by Sachiko M. So if Meshuggah is kind of the past, I say that although they just put out a new song and I love it, so <laughs> present as well. And Yesu is again kind of present because I'm still making music which is so tightly wedded to that sound that I discovered. Then Bar Sachiko is kind of projected into my future as this sort of blueprint for the music that I'd really like to make I feel enabled to make by simply discovering this album I only heard it for the first time last year so it's two sine waves on an empty sampler I mean you can boil it roughly down to one sine wave drone high pitched for half an hour is then joined for another subsequent half hour by another sine tone, which to me sounds like an octave lower. There are a couple of other variations within that, but that's pretty much it. There is absolutely no pull towards the pressure to make something happen. I run a label called Hard Return, which is for repetitive and persistent music, and I think about this a lot with those qualities of repetition and persistence is I love really really repetitive music but so often there is the inclination to change at least something during the endless repeat so if something's going on for 10 minutes it's rare that something is permitted to just loop without something changing some form of development this isn't true for all music but generally speaking as if it's needed in order to sustain interest, in order to garner legitimacy. Just something needs to change, otherwise the listener will get bored. Barca Chico doesn't succumb to that pressure. When I talk about this pressure, I'm talking about something that I think uh, I'm very much projecting into the atmosphere. 
you know this sense that you 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 are obliged to keep people interested and unless you introduce some form of development some form of intrigue you'll lose them this record doesn't bother with that it's just a sign tome that goes on for half an hour and obviously simply by listening to that you are accruing an experience that is changing all of the time as different emotions and sensations interact float in as almost guests into this constant presence of a sign tome have a dialogue with it pass through and then the introduction of a second sine wave feels like the most dramatic thing that's ever happened after you know half an hour of just listening to one this sudden and yet completely matter of fact introduction of a second tome another record I, I could have picked I guess for this third one is Feedback by Yan June which he describes in the text as having worked with feedback systems for a while and originally you know many years ago just getting to feedback he'd moved the source of the feedback in order to generate intrigue and development within the sound then as the next phase the source would stay still, but he'd move his body around the space. And again, that would introduce its own variables. And on the album title feedback for 40 minutes, he does neither of those things. So the source of the feedback stays still. Yanjun stays still. And yet it's a work that does sonically modulate. Simply, I imagine just because of environmental variables, changes in temperature, Maybe changes in light, I don't know. Humidity. But again, that's a, an analogue to what's going on inside the listener as well. These fluctuations that don't exist in the music always exist within the person listening to it. I think that's what came very clear with listening to Barca Chico. And again, just like me discovering metal music and being like, oh, this is possible. This volume, this intensity is allowed. So Chico M has been someone who's done something that now makes it okay for, <laughs> for me to do it, to generate repetitive music that doesn't feel an obligation to fade in a second layer gradually you know to make it so that if you scrub through the audio file it doesn't matter that minute two sounds like minute 20 so yeah i think Barsi chico is is the embodiment of particularly because it's a an album that's using the internal test tones of a sampler it's an empty sampler it's not ingesting any expectations, any sense of obligation. It's not projecting any etiquette. There's no sense that it's really in dialogue at all. It is just simply being. I, I love it for that.
So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in a fortnight with a guest. And you can head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for almost 100 back episodes now. And also head over to coffee, ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening, where if you're enjoying what you're hearing, you can chip in a donation just to help pay for the small amount of outgoings involved in keeping the show ticking. Thank you so much as always for your support. I really appreciate it. Until next time, goodbye.